heard. Uh, my name is Ray. Um, I'm part of the Rolling NYC small group here. Um, today's scripture comes from Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now Yahweh say, said to Abram, Depart from your land and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and one who holds you in contempt I'll dishonor. And in you, all families on earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth, as Yahweh told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram gathered uh, Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions they owned that they owned, and the people that they'd acquired in Haran. Then they departed to journey to the land of Canaan. When they entered the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the side of Shechem of the teacher's oak. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your seed. So there Abram built an altar to Yahweh who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and set up his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram picked up and walked on and moved stage by stage to the Negev wilderness. If you don't mind, I want to make a little announcement, though, that it just as a way of, of making a personal invitation uh, to start off with, it, from me to you about our Sunday uh, Bible study. In the past weeks, we've uh, restarted the Sunday morning adult Bible class on the fourth floor, as some of you very well know and have been participating in it. It begins at 9.30 each Sunday, approximately 9.30, and as in the past, I'm leading the discussion. We started in the Christmas uh, season with a focus on uh, the stories of Jesus' birth, but from the start, we've taken um, our direction toward a kind of broader topic of the question, how do we read the Bible? The Bible is a big and varied book written over many centuries, and it's especially important for us since we, as part of our mission statement, we study and follow the Bible as the Word of God. And in my own experience, I've been uh, preaching most Sundays about that Bible uh, here for more than 27 years, and I've been teaching classes on that fourth floor for <clears throat> more than 40. <clears throat> I know how persistent and challenging questions about how to read and interpret the Bible can be, so much so that many people keep themselves from even asking hard questions. We're wanting the Sunday morning group to be a safe place where we can all look at a variety of challenging questions and express our thoughts honestly with each other, especially some topics that are difficult, that people have found difficult in various ways over the years. I thought I should be open about my own views and, uh, from the start, and so I've handed out to the group some pages that I've written about the Bible and God's revelation. These are available by coming to the class and picking them up, and some of you have multiple copies of them now, but it's also going to be available online through our website under the weekly classes. I really do not know how all of it's going to go. I don't know all the topics and questions that we'll pursue, 
but they'll surely include some discussions about the Bible in relationship to science and faith, uh, inclusion, exclusion, the uses of violence, the law and the gospel, slavery and exploitation in its many forms, racial and ethnic identity and inclusion, kingship, empire, government, I, of course I have the exact answer on that, and um, patriarchy and the empowerment of women, the meaning and importance of human life, marriage and divorce and society and the various forms that those, those relationships take nowadays, and issues of, the, uh, of LGBTQ identity and inclusion today. And that's a big list of things, and uh, you, it can go in different directions. But I also want to take this opportunity to say a few words more about that, the last topic that I mentioned, since it has been a focus of debate in our world, namely the identity and inclusion of our brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community. I'm sure that most of you know that as a congregation, we've had for a very long time a substantial group of members, often very active, who are part of the LGBTQ community, whether they choose to make that identity public or to keep it private. Because of a centuries-long history of negative treatment in society, often empowered or fueled, we might say, by a few Bible verses, Many have been uh, very reluctant over the years to live their identity openly. I simply want to say, sort of from the pulpit as it were, that the elders, and that's where the, the focus in some ways has been, the elders and the staff and many individuals of this congregation have studied those Bible passages that fueled so much um, debate about all of it. They've studied them intently, and have prayed over them, prayed over our congregation, reflected on this long history. And we believe that it's very important that our LGBTQ sisters and brothers should be openly welcomed, affirmed, and valued in our congregation, like everyone else, with all of our virtues and faults. We want everyone to grow spiritually, and for the spiritual gifts of everyone to be fully developed. That's already well underway, but we simply want to affirm that that's, that's something that we believe is really important for our identity as a body of Christ. And that's one of the subjects that we will talk about in that, as we discuss that question, how do we read the Bible? So I want to invite you and welcome you uh, to participate in, in all of that. So... Turn to your, your uh, notes and the scriptures and so forth from Genesis, the 12th chapter, and the first nine verses. Last week, we reflected on Genesis 4 starting, but also on, on, on Cain, specifically Cain and Abel, and then the unfolding story of the brokenness of humanity that we have in Genesis chapter 4 through, uh, through 11. It's, in a sense, sort of the working out of that the, the, as it's usually called, the curse in the Garden of Eden. We see unfold in the story generation after generation after generation, often given in very stylized forms. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he lived so-and-so many years, and he begat so-and-so, and he had lived so many more years, and he died, and so forth. And then the next generation we go down. The generations march in step, step by step, down to, to Noah. 
There are the generations of Cain, as we talked about last time, and the genera- then the generations of Seth that began at the, at the end of that fourth chapter, as we mentioned last time. And they, those generations of Seth go marching on down to the flood and to uh, the Tower of Babel, or Babel, as, we, as one goes through the, the, the whole story of those first 11 chapters of, of Genesis. And one sees this brokenness unfolding and so in a whole series of crises. The descendants of Shem then after the flood uh, go down to the uh, Tower of Babel and then on beyond that down from t- to Terah and Abram. Abram being the, the original name of Abraham and his father's name is Terah. And all of that is in the 11th chapter of, of Genesis as these generations unfold. The brokenness continues through all of that. There's no real change. Even though there are these gigantic uh, events told in stories of of the flood and the Tower of Babel and and all of that. The brokenness continues as as it goes along. The generations march on. In shortening steps as the the numbers after the flood are considerably less than the numbers per generation, the years per generation uh, before the flood, when we have mostly in the 900s at at that time. So these generations keep going, going, going down to the time of of Abram. And, um, And then with Abram, of course, comes the passage that we have as our text for this morning, as God calls Abram. God, Yahweh said to Abram, depart from your land and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And so on. But um, there's something that happens just before that as, as well. Those generations have been marching on and on as we watch them unfold in, the, in these parabolic scenes of, of, of Genesis 4 through 11. But they come down to Sarai, I guess is the proper way to say it. It's the original name for Sarah. Abraham's wife is Sarah. Abram's wife is Sarai. And uh, when we have, ju- in the verses just before our text today, as you, you'll find them there on the front side of your, of your sheet, from Genesis 11, verses 30 to 32, there is this statement that's there as they are, as Tira and his family are about to leave Ur of the Chaldees and so forth. About, about Abram and his wife, it says, Now Sarah, Sarai, I guess I should say, Sarai, was barren. She had no child. Tira took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, Terah lived to be 205 years old, quite a low old, old age, but not in the 900s, and Terah died in Haran. Just notice that little observation. Sarai was barren. She had no child. The generations have marched on, march, march, march down the line. But they come to Abram. And that's clearly where 
the narrator wants us to see them going, but then they are stopped right there. The march stops with Sarai because she can't have a child. And her barrenness ends the line of the generations. It all comes down to that it is broken, that line, that march is broken. And there is, unless something else is done, some other marriage Sarai has gotten rid of and you get her, or you get another wife or whatever, the genealogies cannot, that are in this line, cannot go forward. And there is not really any way that they can deal with it. There's not any real hope of change within that structure of the, of the generations. The structures of family and clan and tribe that are so emphasized all the way through that, marching toward a stable future of settled communities and prosperity, that's broken here. And it's precisely at that point when the, when the march of the generations from Genesis 4 down to Genesis 11 comes to that halt that God intervenes. It's been broken. The line of the generations seems dead. But just then, in the time of barrenness, God calls. God calls Abram and with him his family. It's a, as we read it, just if you don't mind just listening to it again, the first three verses of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I think three of the most important verses in, in the Bible for both the New Testament and the Old, a turning point of all turning points. Yahweh said to Abram, depart from your land and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and one who holds you in contempt, I'll dishonor. And in you, all families on earth will be blessed. In that time when it seemed, well, Abram is just sort of tagging along with his father to Haran. There's, he's left behind in Ur, one dead son and another who wants to stay behind in Ur, evidently. And Terah carries his son up to Haran. They're on their way to Canaan, but they decide not to. What's the point? It stops here. And so they stop and they settle in Haran. But right then, God calls. It's the call is in the form of a command, we could say. But it's a command, as it turns out, that's also an invitation and a call of Abraham. And it breaks the settled state of family and land and community and all of those things that the structures up to that point have been built on. He says to Abram, depart from your land. And by the way, the word land here, as it's translated, and we'll, you'll see it quite a number of times here, is the word in Hebrew, Eretz. Uh, there's a famous uh, newspaper in Israel called Haaretz, the land. 
But that's also the word that's used in Genesis 1 and in the whole creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Eretz, the earth. And so the ambiguity, is it a limited spot of land or is it the earth? Is, one, is something that's built into all that. Abram is called, it's an invitation to, uh, to break those, all those ties of family and of land and of community and to leave one world behind that's connected to all that and move toward a land, move toward a world that can't yet be known. Now this is a kind of wandering and we talked about wandering last time with Cain, but it's not really the exiled wandering of Cain or even of Adam and Eve as they're uh, uh, put outside the, the Garden of Eden. But it is, uh, and it's not the, it's not the, the wandering of the, and the spread of people after the Tower of Babel that, where they, because they can't talk to each other, just spread out in the, in the earth. Here, if it's going to work, it's Abram's got to listen to God and do this. And so it is a chosen journey, much more in the form of a journey rather than a wandering. It's a quest for a life that's based not, not just on the march of generations and being in the same line as those who have gone before, but on trusting a promise. And so it's very interesting as you just read those verses, God simply gives a command but then God immediately follows the command before anything can happen with a promise. And so it's based on trusting this promise. And it sets <clears throat> a new pattern, not a pattern of exile and wandering, which is going to be a major pattern through the Old Testament, but of journeying, of questing, of going forward in trust and trusting a, a, a promise. And it sets a pattern for God's people. And I wanted just by including Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20 on the front side of your sheet to, to say that this is a pattern that one sees echoed again and again right on down to the disciples of Jesus. Just think about one who studies these, these texts and as uh, Mark does or Matthew does, and you can find much the same language in Matthew, that uh, as they come to tell the story of, of the call of the disciples, there's multiple ways that one could have told it, but notice the way in which it's told here. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, come, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left the nets and they followed him. And Jesus saw James, and <clears throat> the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, excuse me, <clears throat> as they were in their boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men, and they departed to follow Jesus. That call to discipleship echoes the call of Abram based on a promise. Based on what? Well, Jesus hasn't shown too much to him, at least certainly not in the Gospel of Mark, but they hear the authority of that call. They hear the promise of the call. I will make you to fish for people. 
I don't know what they made of that exactly, but it's, it constitutes a call into a new life, a new way of being that is not based on the job that they had and the structures around them and the hired men and the father and mother and all of that, but stepping out, leaving that behind and going on this quest, this journey with one who calls them into these promises of God and what they hear for themselves as that promise of God. And so this promise is given, I'm sorry, this, this command is given, but before Abraham can do anything, God speaks further. And, uh, and you know, depart from your land and your kindred and your father's house of the land that I'll show you. He should have stopped there and said, let's, okay, I want you to do that first. Let's go. You, you do this. Obey me, and then we'll, we'll talk a little further. But that's not the way that God does it. God gives that command, but then also gives the promise and gives it extensively. God promises, as we know reading the Bible, God promises the whole story. Out of the barrenness, God will raise new life and new flourishing and new blessing. The promise is made to Abraham, of course, but its aim is all humanity. And I, I'll make of you a great nation. If you break it down and just look at the, 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 there's seven promises here. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and one who holds you in contempt, I'll dishonor. And, and especially this last one, in you, you, Abram, who has a wife who cannot have a child and therefore has no future generations after him, in you, all families on the earth. Literally, it's there, the, the word is not the word Eretz, the land, the earth. It's the word ground. Everybody that's on the ground, on the Adama, will be blessed. Every human family. So this promise is to Abraham, but its aim is all of humanity. Turning that brokenness that's just been like a drumbeat through the 4th through the 11th chapters of, of Genesis into blessing. It's plagued all people. It's still there, but it is God's aim to bring about that blessing. Now, the promise is a call to, to trust. God hasn't done anything yet. And Abram hasn't done anything yet. It's a call to trust. It's a call to build a life based not on the obvious visible facts that are there in front of you, that you don't have children, you're not going to have children, you're going to have to start over. Abraham's already an old man by this time. But it's based on the deeper reality, the truth of God as the creator of life. And so Abram is instructed to journey. But God's promise here is not based on Abram's perfect response to God's invitation or God's command. God's aim is God's whole creation. The promise that he makes to Abraham, very specifically, is God's work. God's going to do this. 
Abram is invited to share in God's work, to share the quest, to join in shaping a future. And this future, as we learn through the stories, but also can just imagine, and we can certainly see it as, as it's dealt with, can take a lot of different forms. God's faithfulness over and over as we watch the story unfold intervenes to bring the ultimate goals that God wants to have happen, the goal of grace and so forth. Famously, it's not very long after these verses that we're reading today, Abram, after he gets to the Negev, goes on down into Egypt, and there he decides to lie about his, his wife Sarai because she's beautiful and, and so on, and, he, and Pharaoh takes her as his concubine and is um, going to have, try to have children by her, but, uh, but God intervenes to, to stop this. Abram, in other words, has chosen to go with God, but that doesn't mean that Abram is always on track with, with following God's promise or following God's commandments. He, first thing he does is to give away his wife, as it were, because of his own cowardice and fear and so forth. So there's this pro process. It's not something that God wanted him to do, but it is something that God deals with as Abram deal, deals with this, this situation in, in Egypt. And it happens again, and there are many other situations that, that go on like this. The promise is God's work, and Abram is invited to share in that, in that quest. He's going to be joint, to join God in shaping and creating a, a future. But the story is going to be the story of God's grace as it unfolds. And, and so we, we watch as these various, very human things happen in, in, uh, in Abram's life. And he gradually grows as he believes and trusts in God. Trusts even to the point that God asks him to give his son, who eventually is born, Isaac, as you know, the one whom he loves and whom God has said the whole future is going to flow from, that he is going to be the one through whom this whole future unfolds, to give him back to God. Does Abram believe God's promise that, a, that uh, in, in Isaac all of the future is going to unfold for him? Or does he believe God's command to do this? And Abram just goes forward as God puts him to the test. And I sort of believe that he also puts God to the test. Which of God's promises is he supposed to believe? And he says that he's going to return from this sacrifice. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. The Lord will provide. And the Lord does provide. He grows in faith, and it's at that point that God says, by myself I have sworn that this whole story is going to unfold through you. So, in our text, Abram departs. He, in a sense, as we said, loses his life, all the life that had been built up for all those decades before, for the good news of the promise. And thus he gains his life, gains his future. Very much like Jesus says, the one who wants to control to gain his own life will lose it. 
but the one who loses his life for this good news will gain it. Yahweh had been known before. Back in chapter 4, we were told at the end of chapter 4, when told about Seth being born, that people called on the name of Yahweh. But this is a kind of new level to call on the name of Yahweh as the center of everything so that you let everything else go because of this promise and the life that it holds. As one comes face to face and with the realization that God is the giver of everything. Even as it says, as he goes down into Canaan, it's a world that... Um, that is dominated by the Canaanites. So we have in verse 4 and following, Abram went forth, as Yahweh told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old. That's a, an age that I can relate to. When he departed from Haran, Abram gathered Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they owned, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. Then they departed to journey to the land of Canaan. When they entered the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site at Shechem of the teacher's oak. This is sometimes called the Oak of Moreh in some translations. Or if it's more properly translated, it's, the oak here is sort of a traditional translation. It's not our species of oak that we have in our parks and, and, uh, and yards, perhaps. It is uh, uh, more correctly tr translated a terebinth tree. So the teacher's oak or the tr teacher's terebinth tree. But then the observation, because he's just passing through, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. He's living out the promise of God, this beautiful promise, this quest that he's on, and he's gone to the land that God has called him to. Ah! But it's already taken, as it were. It's already taken for a different structure of values, a different structure of belief, a different structure of gods, and so forth. The Canaanites were in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, I'll, I will give this land to your seed. So there Abram built an altar to Yahweh. And so on, as, so as we watch, as he goes into this, He's stepping into a different world. It's, it, it's not the same world as was up there at Haran where his father died, but it's a world where it's shaped by the Canaanites. God promises to give the land, give the Eretz, give the earth to Abram's seed. Now in his own life, Abram, as you learn in reading those stories in Genesis, never owns more than just enough for a burial to bury Sarah, Sarah when she dies. But that promise that I, I will give this land to your seed, verse 7, that promise opens the whole earth to the journey of Abram's seed. You, that idea of the seed is one that flows on down, and, and we find it, of course, very powerfully in the, in the, in the New Testament. It's that long journey of faith. I've included on the front side of your, of your sheet a, a passage from Romans. Now you can, just by listening to it, you can hear how much someone like Paul has thought about this passage. 
has thought about these events, has thought about the whole story of Abraham that we have in, in Genesis, and how much he's reflected on this pattern as it comes down into, the, into Jesus and then into his own life as a transforming power in his, in his own life. You can, there's a lot more to the passage than just the, the, the few verses that I've included here. But, but just notice what, how loaded they are, just these very few verses. That's why God's promise is on the basis of his faithfulness, in order that it may be based on grace, and that the promise may remain solid for all of Abraham's seed. He speaks, of course, of Abram only as Abraham. Not only the person whose basis is the law, but also the one whose basis is the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. It's just as God said in Scripture, I've made you a father of many nations. Abraham was in the presence of a God in whom he believed. Believed so much that he was ready to let go of everything else because of the promise of this God. Abraham was in the presence of a God in whom he believed, who brings the dead to life and calls into being things that don't exist. The possibility of the future for Abraham did not exist, and God creates that possibility. That, of course, just in the story of Sarai, echoes all the way down through the, through the scriptures, the number of the of the. the uh, the, the women uh, in, the, in the book of Genesis, but also down, right down to Elizabeth and, uh, and Mary in the story of Jesus' birth. So, so beyond hope, but on the basis of hope, he believed that he would become father of many nations on the basis of what God told him. So shall your seed be. That echoes on down, and Paul helps us through to understand that this is this relationship that values the human being, that the human being participates in God's work, but it never ceases to be God's work. It is God's faithfulness that is carrying it through. And thus, always it is in trust of that God who is going to help us through even when we do not understand who can call the dead to life and call into being the things that don't exist. And so on that base, basis, Abram could hope even when there was no hope and, and live on the basis of, of that, that hope. And so one sees there in Genesis already and certainly in, in, in Paul's uh, writing that God is this promise giver but what one sees also as it all unfolds is the character of a promise a promise is is not there yet a promise is a pointer into a future that's not yet realized and all offspring of Abram struggle with living on land on an earth dominated by a limited vision that so many people have, that in fact so many of God's own people have, a vision of life without a promise, without a quest. Even God's own people forget the promise. 
But Abram knows it. He knows that it, he believes it. He hopes against hope that it's true. He lives on it. He, as I sometimes say, he bets his life on it. That God will be faithful. That God's grace will fulfill God's work. And so he goes and he passes through the land till he gets to this known tourist attraction or religious place of, of, of pilgrimage, perhaps it was, uh, the teacher's oak, as it was called. They loved to have places where, where judges would sit or people would teach under these big, big trees. And so the oak of Moray or the terebinth of Moray is where he goes. But then he keeps on going. He moves and he moves. He builds altars. He calls on the name of Yahweh. He, in that, what does it mean to call on the name of Yahweh? What does that mean? Call on the name of Yahweh. Does it mean at the end of your prayer to say, in Jesus' name, amen? Calling on the name of Yahweh is, at least as it is here and is it, as it is in so much of the scripture, is to say, Yahweh God, you are my God. I am focusing my life to the extent that I am able to do it on you. I trust in your promises. I will leave behind father, mother, family, land, country, all of it. I will leave it behind for you. Whatever it is that separates, even in the midst of dominantly Points, dominant points of view that go against your promises. I will trust your promises. He calls upon the name of Yahweh, refocusing his own vision on, of reality. He sees that truth of the promise maker whose grace will fulfill his promises for this, for this world. Now, as one watches... As it goes on, as the story unfolds, that aspect of life is something that is dominant on and on and on through Scripture. The, the wandering, the, the, the journey, and sometimes the wandering away is marked then by a journey back. And we, we find, for example, the story of the great story, the central story of Israel. Already anticipated in certain passages for, for Abraham, but now in the, as the people as a whole go down into Egypt and they are there trapped in this place of the Canaanites, as it were, in this, in this enslavement. But God comes for them and he brings them out of slavery and he brings them through the wilderness on a journey through the wilderness, not, a, not just a wandering in the wilderness. A journey through the wilderness to a goal, to the, to the place of, 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 of Mount Sinai. And there God makes a place for him to meet with Moses and to meet with Israel. But what is it? It's, it's a movable tabernacle. It's a, it's a meeting place for God who is the God on a journey with his people. Because God is far bigger than any temple that can be built. God, because God is bigger, he wants a tent that human beings can move to symbolize his presence. And he will dwell, as it happens in Exodus, in a cloud above it. Or later, as it, it sometimes described when we get to the time of them nailing down a temple and building one, that he dwells above 
the cherubim that were on the Ark of the Covenant. He is never any one place. He is a movable God because he's far bigger than temples. When you come to, skipping over a lot of story, come to Jesus. What's characteristic of Jesus' ministry? It's on the road. It's journeying. When people want to become Jesus' disciples, one of them, what does he say to them? Foxes have holes. Birds of the heaven have nests. Not to speak of whole tribes and all of that. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It is always a journey. And then when Jesus' early followers came, uh, became a community themselves, they, they called themselves the way, as we learn in the book of, uh, in the book of Acts. The hodos in, in Greek. The way, which means the road, the journey. That is the character of that. And that's the character of life with this God revealed here in this passage, this turning point passage that has echoes and consequences that run all the way through the, uh, the Bible, right into the New Testament very deeply. We receive God's promise. God calls us into the quest, into the journey. And the question is, will we join the work God is doing, God's own work that is his promise, in the world in which we live? Will we join with the Canaanites or with the Egyptians in enslaving our minds to something smaller? Or will we realize that there is this open-ended promise? Never totally fulfilled because even when Jesus comes it's still a call to the journey as he wants God's kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven we live into God's promise as he gives it to us and so a passage like this in some ways it can be one can just read right over it and not really realize what all's going on but it is the turning point from one whole stage of the of Genesis at the beginning and setting forth who God is in relation to his people for the entire future of the of the Bible all through the Old Testament and then into the new and it gets it is part of what we need as part of our conception to be always not really settled down not defined by cultural structures around us and all of that but to be defined by this God who promises the future opens it but it's never completed for us now we live into it again and again as we pass along this way this journey of God's people amen, amen. let's bow together in prayer heavenly father Father, we want to know you. We want to know you through all the ways that you have revealed yourself. Through Abraham. Help us to hear that call as it came to one before whom the future had closed down. 
and God sends him into a new world. Help us to hear the promise that comes without conditions, that tells us who you are as the giver of blessing and life, as the one who gives it to individuals but gives it to all his creatures in the whole world. Then, Father, give us the grace like Abraham, like Abram, to let go of all the securities that we've had and to go out and to follow and to discover and with you to create the future as it unfolds. We know that we're weak and that we'll make mistakes along the way, but we trust in you and in your grace to bring us through. Help us to live boldly. Help us to live in ways that intensely interact with all the things around us and the values around us, seeing them in the light of the truth of your gracious promise that we can never, ever give up on where you're calling us so that we build altar after altar, as it were, and call upon your name to center our lives again and again on who you are and the truth of your grace. Help us. Help us, we pray. Great is your faithfulness. It is renewed every morning. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? I'm just going to read one more time those opening verses. Think about it and think about your life in the light of these verses. Yahweh said to Abraham and perhaps Abraham's seed, all of the whole, all the nations of the world. Depart from your land, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and one who holds you in contempt, I'll dishonor. And in you, all Families on earth will be blessed. Amen. Amen. Greet one another and go forth to serve.